The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. John Walker Lynn is serving 20 years in federal prison after pleading guilty to 10 federal charges, including conspiracy to commit murder, providing support to terrorist organizations, contributing services and support to the al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and using and carrying firearms and destructive devices during crimes of violence. Dubbed the American Taliban, we will hear about how Lynn's passion for Islamic studies took him to Afghanistan where he was captured fighting the Northern Alliance beside the Taliban. It was those images of John Lynn in captivity that brought us the first knowledge of the Guantanamo Bay detainees. And enter my guests, licensed private investigators, David Setheimer and Barry Simon, both highly experienced investigators, who are here to tell us their story of adventure and intrigue. Welcome, David and Barry. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. David, you were the first investigator to work on the case. Tell us about that. Well, um, I was uh, contacted in December of 2001 by uh, Jim Brosnahan, a lawyer at Morrison and Forrester, who was representing uh, John Walker Lind at the request of his parents, and uh, asked if I was willing to undertake a defense investigation, and I said, of course. And where did you start? Well, um, getting a, getting into a, any large case is a little like hopping onto a moving train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to find a place to jump on. Um, I think looking back, uh, what I began to do immediately was one, uh, start to systematically uh, study the press, uh, reporting on uh, what was happening in Afghanistan and what had happened to John Walker Lind. In particular, I was trying to weed out um, all the press that was derivative and identify reporters who had actually been, uh, in some cases, eyewitnesses. Actually, been in Afghanistan, right? Okay, as opposed to ones who were reporting second and third hand. All right, wire and pool accounts. Um, the other thing you always do in a case like this is start uh, studying the environment you're going to be working in. 
learning the history, um, learning what's going on, learning about languages and customs, all of that sort of thing, which was particular to the geography of this case, which was essentially uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Yemen. And did you know from the beginning that you were going to have to be going to those countries to do the investigation on this case? Uh, yeah, that was the uh, the initial assignment. All right. The, the uh, assignment was essentially exotic as it sounded, was to uh, prepare a defense uh, for Lind, just as you would if uh, he had been accused of robbing a Seven Eleven store in San Francisco. I see. So, how much information did you have to begin with? Well, we had very little information um, that was derived from what's normally thought of as discovery materials. Explain what discovery is, would you, David? During uh, criminal litigation uh, in the United States, the prosecution and, in some instances, the defense exchange information. That's called discovery material. All right. Uh, If you're working on a uh, state criminal case, in many jurisdictions you get the entire prosecution file. Uh, Discovery in uh, federal criminal cases is much more limited, and... um, uh, discovery in cases involving uh, terrorism uh, is extremely complicated. It involves a lot of um, classification issues. Um, in this case, we had uh, virtually no discovery from the government. Uh, we did have um, uh, Lynn's statement to the FBI. That was about it. One statement? One statement. And that was what? How many uh, pages? I think it was about two pages. Um, then, of course, we did have press accounts. And um, before we actually uh, began to travel, Barry and I had uh, several long interviews with Lind at a jail in northern Virginia. All right. So when did Barry come into the case? I, when the case broke here... Um, it, and this is Barry. Yeah, it, it was really uh, interesting to me, and I thought, wow, what a great defense case this would be uh, to have. And I'd actually written to uh, Jim Brosnahan saying, um, you know, I can do this case. And I had assumed that he had put together a team of, like, former government agents or State Department type of people and my thought was that I could be someone who could translate the case into a criminal defense case uh, mm-hmm. that could actually be the information gathered would be of some value um, in a court of law. And when I was finally, uh, when I spoke to uh, Jim Brosnan, he said, can you work with David Fetchheimer? And I said, of course, that's great. And I was, uh, of course, very happy that uh, David was on board you guys are a great team. I can imagine working with you would be very rewarding. So what did you, what did you do first, Barry? Well, I, I did similar stuff. I had to really study. I had actually been to the tribal areas of Pakistan a year before um, on a criminal defense case. And, of course, um, that was before 911, and the whole world looked uh, a little different then. 
And so the studying part was really um, very important to get back into it and sort of figure out what was going on in that part of the world post-911. And as David mentioned, our um, talks with, with John Lind were extremely valuable. He turned out to be somebody um, who participated in this case. He was insightful. Uh, he understood his case, and he was also very centered and, and solid in who he was and what his role was. Um, and he was very detail-oriented, and he provided us with the kind of stuff that is sort of every investigator's dream of a client, which is the stuff that will actually move the case forward. And he was only 20 years old at the time, correct? Right. Okay. The, the other thing to add about uh, him was that he was an extremely accurate reporter. Um, and... Um, so that while he often didn't know place names, uh, he was very specific about directions. You go five miles down this road, you find a big rock, you turn right. <laughs> Amazing. When we got there, we found out that he was almost always correct. Yeah, we turned the corner, and there was that big rock. <laughs> Amazing. In a country you had, had either one of you been to Afghanistan before? I had been there on a case in uh, 1970. And I had never been to Afghanistan. But, so things uh, have changed been, a little bit since 1970. The, the, the um, country had more or less been destroyed, um, turned to rubble and dust. Hmm. Wow. All right, so what kind of research did you have to do before you actually travel to the country? Well, in addition to uh, reading everything we could and, and figuring out who actually had seen the events they had written about, um, we engaged in a, in a kind of preliminary process I know people always think I'm crazy when I talk to, about this. I, I work, in, uh, as does Barry, out of the country a lot. And one of the great difficulties is dealing with jet lag. Yeah. Um, people always think they can uh, hit the ground running, but that's not true. So what we did in this case, uh, we started in London. Um, we flew from New York to London we spent a couple of days in London, and we talked to people in London that I knew from other worlds and that Barry knew, who knew things about um, e either the Afghanistan or Pakistan or Yemeni aspect of the case, or who knew people in those countries. And then we traveled to uh, Germany, hmm. and uh, we uh, interviewed a German reporter who had been uh, present at the Battle of Kualajangi, which was the medieval fortress uh, where uh, John was arrested and where the CIA agent, uh, John Spann, had been killed. Uh, he was, did he actually witness that? Yeah, he was present at the battle. He was. And um, for those who may be listening who are investigators, uh, the wonderful thing that happened during that interview was that this reporter uh, had 
loaned his satellite telephone to the second CIA agent who was present. And that agent had, uh, we asked the reporter if by any chance he had the phone bill. Amazing. <laughs> Rummaged through his desk and pulled it out. And there was every telephone call that the uh, CIA agent had made using the German reporter's telephone. Um, and you had a ready-made witness list. It was instructive. Amazing. I think our time in Europe uh, was pretty important as a basis for us to understand what was going on, both in the big picture and the little picture. And it's kind of funny, um, months later, uh, Jim Brosnahan gave a speech to a, a large group of attorneys, and um, he spoke about David and I and our bravery and good work and so on and said, uh, we were concerned we hadn't heard from these guys in, in a few days, and, and we were worried that we had sent them off into you know, into danger, and then he joked that, but they just sent us a uh, a message saying, we are in Paris, <laughs> and we're just leaving. <laughs> and while we were in Paris, uh, exploring whatever connections we had, uh, we met a uh, German, I mean a French uh, cameraman who had been uh, with the Northern Alliance Army in Afghanistan, and he'd been with the very unit that was fighting the unit that John Lind was with. And so he was able to give us very specific directions as to how to find the terrain of that battlefield. And he was able to give us the cell phone number of the Northern Alliance general who had Amazing. been commanding in that sector. And later when we got to Afghanistan... Uh, we used that number, talked to the general, and he was able to talk us into the part of the country we wanted to be in. So in addition to acclimatizing ourselves to different time zones, the, uh, the foreplay in Europe all turned out to be extremely useful once we got to where we were going. So um, when did you actually get to, where did you go first in Afghanistan? First we went to Pakistan. Okay. And um, our, uh, we, you know, we had several assignments. Um, one was doing what any uh, investigator would be asked to do in any case by any lawyer, and that was to uh, verify the client's story. And uh, so uh, the grand itinerary of our travels involved following John Walker Lind's two to three years in the Islamic world, which had led up to his arrest. And um, so there were locations uh, throughout uh, Pakistan where he had studied which were key both to John's personal story and to the criminal charges. I see. And the first place we went in Pakistan was to a, a training camp uh, north of Islamabad on the Green Line with Kashmir. David, I can't wait to hear what you did next. We'll be right back after a break. 
Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We are discussing the fascinating criminal investigation of federal prisoner John Walker Lynn, a young man from Marin County, California, who became known as the American Taliban. I'm talking with David Fetchheimer and Barry Simon. Uh, David, you were talking about when you first arrived in in, uh, Pakistan first, before you arrived in Afghanistan. Can you tell what happened next? Well, um, we had uh, uh, gotten ourselves to a training camp up on the green line between Pakistan and Kashmir. 
uh, which was the, fir- the first physical location um, involved in the criminal charges. And uh, we, um, we managed to visit this remote and obscure place. And uh, uh, the way we had sort of informally divided our roles was that um, I figured out the logistics of how we would get places. And once we got there, Barry uh, took over and was responsible for all of the documentation that uh, we had to do, photographs, GPS readings, that kind of stuff. All right. And how did Uh, you accommodate that? Well, as usual, through blind luck. (laughs) Okay. And um, I had found um, some fixers. Uh, Fixers are people who work with uh, news media primarily, um, foreign correspondents. And I I had uh, found the people in Pakistan, uh, both through people I knew at the New York Times who'd been in Pakistan, and strangely enough, through um, the Mennonite charities uh, who were active in that part of the world. And um, when I say blind luck, it turned out that the people that we hired to help us knew what they were doing and uh, were able to get us to this uh, training camp, which had been bombed um, by U.S. forces maybe three weeks before we visited. Um, From there, uh, we traveled to uh, a place south of Islamabad at the foot of the tribal territories called Banu, uh, where John had been in school. And um, we were uh, able to interview people at the school and people who had been students were While people, John was were people there. generally cooperative? Yes. Um, you know, um, John was a, a very sympathetic figure to the people who knew him in that part of the world. I see. Um, he was also known as someone who was, he, he impressed people with his dedication to Islam. I see. And I think even more so than than the people that were from Pakistan and who were, you know, raised to be in these madrasas and to study the Koran, um, uh, you know, they considered John's dedication to his Islam very, very impressive. And so that was something in our favor. I think we ran into people who had various agendas. Not everybody saw it as uh, a way to help. Um, at at that time, uh, you know, the, the, that part of the world was roiling. It was it was being turned upside down, and I remember sitting inside um, this little room in Banu with the head of the school, and up above there was a helicopter, and of course that sent a shockwave of paranoia as to who we were mm-hmm. and uh, what our role there was. Um, at the time, it was just another one of the little interesting uh, twist. Certainly created the t- uh, more tension, however, though. Right. Yeah. But again, I think it was John, the, the respect that people had for John and his approach 
um, that helped us quite a bit. He was well known there. Well, well he'd, be, he'd become well known <laughs> after right. the fact. after his arrest. Yeah. Before that, he wouldn't have been. Well, his classmates knew him. His teachers knew him. And he would go to the internet cafe, the the one place where he could communicate with his parents or the outside world from there. And um, uh, he so and he was an outsider in this uh, you know rural Pakistani village. All right. So let's let's go back for a minute. Um, you mentioned earlier in our conversation here about visiting him in Virginia while he was in custody. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, in every criminal defense case, one of the, the beginning benchmarks is what role will a client play in his own defense? And, and as anybody who's done this kind of work knows, you get every possible combination of assistance or lack of assistance. Um, I think we were both pretty impressed with John as somebody who could participate in his own case, and it was pretty grounded in who he was and what he had done and where he had been and had suffered tremendously for it. And I think that uh, aside from uh, his own inner strength, I mean, his his views and his ability to help us uh, was, was pretty important to us, as it would be in any any case. So you're describing him as a, a intelligent, committed person to his religion, um, a good historian, was able to give incredible descriptions about how to get someplace where there aren't any markings or street signs other than a rock. Right. He, he remembered his journey because for him, and I think to this day, it remains a religious quest. Um, I just remember myself as being, when I was 20, and, and what I was willing to do and, and what I believed in. And he just was, this religion was was the road for him. And so he remembered everything that he had done. He had done most of the stuff on his own. It was his own desires and, and will getting from place to place. Of course, events took over at certain points. But uh, in terms of a client, in terms of his ability to help us, it was, it was pretty important. And did you have any unusual restrictions while you were visiting him at the prison? Or I guess it, this, was this in a prison that you were in at? It was in the at? county jail. Yeah, county jail, county okay. Jail. Did you have any unusual restrictions? I think once we passed, um, well, we know it was very closely monitored. Um, and again, I... I, I point everybody back to the times. I mean, uh, you know, the terrorist attack had just happened. Uh, the country was very raw and very scared and very excited and, and emotionally uh, distraught. And so it was in that context that, that our um, interviews took place with John. Now, were you able to take notes while you interviewed him? Yes. And what, were you able to keep those notes? Yes. All right. And how about the attorney? What happened with uh, the attorney's interaction, Jim Brosnahan's interaction with John Walker Lynn? Well, we, I don't know that we can really answer that. He, there, he had a large uh, defense team, um, and uh, they spent a great deal of time with him. Um, we had uh, several very long interviews 
and uh, he walked us through the landscape that we were later going to travel through. Well, I'm thinking, David, of, of a conversation that you and I ha- and Barry had regarding uh, what would happen to the attorney's notes and how the, uh, Those two are the rules would have to communicate. I'm sorry? Those are the rules at Guantanamo. At Guantanamo, okay. That and, didn't exist in the United States. Uh, uh, right. It, uh, John, you know, it's worth remembering, was the first detainee. He was the first person who was kidnapped. He was the first person that was tortured. Uh, they hadn't uh, quite uh, solidified the collection of uh, rules and bizarre regulations. Let me interrupt, David. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified. More of this story in just a moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm talking with Barry Simon and David Betheimer, both licensed PIs in California who worked on the investigation of John Walker Lynn. David, we were talking about briefly about information, what the attorneys were running into interviewing John Walker Lynn, and I evidently, when I discussed it with you uh, yesterday, uh, the information we were talking about didn't have to do with John's case, but what attorneys run into interviewing people at Guantanamo. So we're going to put that aside now, and you're going to tell us more about the hurdles you uh, and obstacles you had in Afghanistan. Well, the, I think what's interesting and what was difficult about this job were the logistics of it. Um, every aspect of the log- logistics of it, um, the, you know, getting a visa to Pakistan at that time was a problem. Uh, getting a visa to Yemen was a problem. What were you going to tell people uh, your reason for travel was? Uh, going on vacation? Um, and what did you tell them? Well, um, Pakistan um, uh, gave us visas as journalists. Um, We discovered that there was an Afghan embassy in Washington. Uh, It was in a temporary executive office suite. Mm -hmm. The visas themselves were mimeographed. Um, Interesting. And uh, I don't know that anybody else had ever gone to get a visa there it turned out that no one cared why we wanted to go to Afghanistan. Um, and it also turned out that we never encountered anyone who wanted to see our visas or stamp our passports. Um, but the, the logistics were daunting in uh, Afghanistan, which we went to from Pakistan. Um, there were no uh, airlines. There were no uh, rental cars. There were no hotels. There was no telephone service. Hmm. Um, there were no restaurants. There were no gas stations. Um, and um, th- those were the, uh, you know, the really interesting uh, problems to overcome. We we went to Afghanistan initially from Quetta in a part of Pakistan called Baluchistan, um, and. Um, the people who were helping us in northern Pakistan had introduced us to an Afghan merchant who uh, had a private security force. And uh, they agreed to take us uh, into to Helmand province in southern Afghanistan from Quetta. Uh, we had work to do there. And after we had finished that work, we came back into Quetta in Pakistan because there was no way to travel to the next part of Afghanistan, the far north that we had to be in. We went from uh, Pakistan to Dubai to Istanbul to uh, Tashkent and Uzbekistan. And how, how were you traveling? Well, when we went into southern Afghanistan, we went in with this merchant's uh, private security people. And you know, they had an vehicles? off-road vehicle, Cars? and 
and uh, a collection of Kalashnikovs. And uh, they knew where we wanted to go, and they got us in and out. We uh, we had a satellite phone, and we were we'd always joke among us. Well, we've got this phone, and it works pretty well. But if we get in trouble, who's going to help us? <laughs> who would we call? Who, who would we call, and how fast could they get over and uh, help us out of there? Interesting. Okay. I, mean, I think when we look back at that time, I know when I do, given what's going on right now in Afghanistan and Pakistan, I think at the time we thought we were heading into a war zone, and we were really were. I mean, there was still a, a, a fight going on at the time. We would hear gunshots uh, when we were in Kandahar. We heard a gun battle going on in the distance. But um, looking back at it now, I think, and I, I don't know if you agree with this, David, that the actual time we went there was this kind of like strange lull, and I think that helped us move around a little bit at the time. I think people were sort of in shock trying to figure out what was going on there. And I think uh, a couple of Americans moving around, uh, people had other problems. Mm-hmm. I think another thing, I know before I left, we, we had discussed the, the possibility um, that we would be stopped by the U.S. military, um, that we would be moving around and all of a sudden some young soldier from Iowa would say, you guys can't go down the road, and that would be the end of the case, or that would be the end of that aspect of the case. But we never ran into that. You never did? No, it did. We stayed out of Kabul, and at that time the U.S. military was keeping an extremely low profile. Um, I suppose people always are curious about danger, probably the most dangerous thing that we were aware of all the time were landmines. Tremendous stretches of the country were mined. And um, um, the people who took us into southern Afghanistan uh, were worried about uh, being hit by American aircraft Mm -hmm. uh, because there were very few vehicles on, you know, moving around. Did they worry about traveling with a couple of Americans? What? Did they worry about traveling with a couple of Americans? I, I our timing was perfect. Um, the American military was out of sight, and there weren't very many of them. Uh, the international aid groups, and UN groups, and NATO groups, and the Red Cross—none of those people were there at the time, uh, and uh, we were the, sort of the only two foreigners <laughs> in town. And looking back, is there anything that you would have liked to have accomplished that you couldn't do or didn't do? Uh, you know, there's always more to do in a case like this. There's always sure. another place to go. There's other more documentation that could have been needed, but uh, I, I, think, uh, I think we did a pretty good job. I think we we had it. I think that um, had the case gone to trial, we would have definitely needed to go back again and do more. Um, but the work that we had done to that point, I think, was we we had we had both good luck and um, we had done good work. Did you have witnesses that you would have we did. tried to attempt to bring to the United States for a trial? We did, and we actually started to the process of getting them um, through the long 
bureaucratic road of getting people over here. One of the things we had asked uh, Jim Brosnahan, who we were working for, for was a goal. And so uh, Jim said, okay, I want you to find the foxhole that John was in on September 11th. And um, John... Don't tell me you found it. John had driven, had given us a hand-drawn map. And... Um, and we did find it. <laughs> and I'll never forget this. Incredible. We were up there on this bluff looking at these uh, craters where the U.S. had bombed. And uh, some young little kids, they were like goat herders. And uh, as we were sitting there, um, we had heard this bomb go off in the distance. And it was a mine. And uh, the kid just matter, you know, matter-of-factly turned to us and said, Oh, it was just a landmine. Oh, just a landmine. It was just a landmine. He would, he'd already been used to the dangers of his life. Hmm. Hmm. But there were, uh, there were other surprising logistical problems. After we had uh, gotten ourselves to Uzbekistan and to come into Afghanistan from the north, uh, we discovered that the uh, border between Uzbekistan and Afghanistan was literally locked. And what do you mean locked? There was a bridge, and the bridge had a gate across it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the gate was locked. Um, and, um, but again, luck had intervened, and we had arranged to travel with people who had a key to that lock. Really? And... Um, you know, the, the gate was opened, we went through it, the gate was closed behind us. Um, and locked. Right. Um, I mean, these are, you know, problems that don't usually present themselves. Um, but, you know, that that was... If, if we accomplished anything for our clients, it was surmounting these hurdles. Yes. Um, so, uh, in uh, northern Afghanistan, uh, we stayed uh, in a guest house run by General Dostum, who was the Uzbek warlord in, in northern Afghanistan. And um, it was in his territory that the fortress of Kuala Janga was. I see. And because we were Dostum's guests, um, he gave us permission uh, to visit this fortress, and which was actually the scene of the crime. Um, it's where John was arrested. Uh, it was the central physical location of the case. Um, and what, is it also where uh, Mike Spann was murdered? Right. Yes. Um, so we explored this fortress. I mean, our goal was to go to every single place that John Walker had been on his odyssey. And, of course, the, the, the government's the contention was that he was a terrorist and that he was somebody who was military-oriented and to fight against the United States and would have hooked up with bin Laden and, and so on. And so 
what we were trying to do was to follow every single place that he had been and to show exactly what he was doing and how both his own his own desires to move around and where he wanted to go and how he wanted to study Islam and also how events overtook him at that time and, and put him into uh, and where he ended up in Kuala Jangi was uh, a perfect example of how events overtook him. Yes, I actually have a um, a quote here from the court records, United States of America versus John Philip Walker Lynn. This is criminal case number 02-37-A. It says, By the time Mr. Lynn arrived at Camp Rhino, it was night and the temperature was cold. Immediately upon arrival, soldiers cut off all Mr. Lynn's clothing. He developed frostbite, completely naked, wearing nothing but his blindfold and shaking violently from the cold nighttime air. Mr. Lynn was then bound by to a stretcher with heavy duct tape wrapped tightly around his chest, upper arms, ankle, and the stretcher itself. Next, he was placed in a windowless metal shipping container about 15 feet long, 7 feet wide, and 8 feet high, but did not, but not before military personnel photographed Mr. Lynn as he lay naked on the stretcher, which is the scenes that we saw that was passed around the world. Private investigators Barry Simon and David Fetchheimer, back with more in a moment. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. 
would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili, radio to thrive by. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Private investigators Barry Simon and David Fetchheimer are discussing their intriguing investigation of John Walker Lynn, who is currently serving time in federal prison. Uh, on one of our breaks, uh, we were discussing the investigation, and I, I do want to clear something up. Uh, evidently, as what happens often, the information that I received from the Internet was a little inaccurate. Instead of pleading to 10 counts, John Lynn pleaded to two counts, guilty to two counts, um, and those charges were what, David? Uh, he was uh, uh, giving material assistance to giving material assistance to the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Yeah. Al Qaeda to the Taliban. To the Taliban. And my understanding is, the definition of the word the Taliban means students of Islam. Is that correct? I guess that's where it's derived from. Um, they were, of course, the legitimate government of Afghanistan at the time, and apparently maybe again. <laughs> yeah, could be. That's certainly true. Barry. Yes. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with? Uh, well, the, the case, uh, of course, is... Uh, was a tremendous experience on just the level of, uh, of being an investigator. It's the kind of case you dream of. Um, we were on the international stage. We had felt that we had, uh, as far as we had gotten, that we had accomplished what we needed to do. We were prepared to defend John um, in, in, in the face of this legal onslaught. So on that level, I think it was uh, very exciting. And we also... Uh, for me personally, it was great working with David. We were joined at the hip for uh, in some pretty intense situations. You were uh, there for how long together? Your your trip from what from beginning to end was how long? Well, in the various aspects of it, it was close to three months. Okay. And uh, we were on the edge of what the next ten years uh, would show. In, for the, in America's fight on the war on terrorism, we, the way that John was treated, 
the, the 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 legal aspects of the of the way people who who were caught in Afghanistan were subsequently treated, and leading up to where we are today. And so, uh, for us, it was uh, you know just a tremendous experience. And, and um, like I say, I think we were prepared to go into federal court and and defend John Walker Lind. And you feel like you had uh, you had done everything that you could possibly do to provide the, a proper defense for him. I think that the work that we had done to date, again, we we would have had to make one more round over there. But the work that we had done to that point had shown that John was not a terrorist, that John did not receive terrorist training and was not somebody who was um, fighting against the United States, but rather was on a religious quest um, and, and perhaps at, at junctures misguided, but certainly not a terrorist. So, the, so he was in a training camp that was studying the Islamic faith and not any kind of terrorism activities? Well, terrorism as opposed to military training. I mean, he was not singled out as somebody who would be a shoe bomber, or and he certainly didn't volunteer for that. That's not what he w- was about. And I, and I think our work uh, would have shown that. He, he was uh, involved on in the side of what was then the legitimate government of Afghanistan's uh, dispute with a uh, with the Northern Alliance, which, from the point of view of the government of Afghanistan, was itself a terrorist group. It was a, you know, it was the tag end of a civil war mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. It had nothing to do with the United States. It had nothing really uh, to do with Al Qaeda, um, and uh, he was at the wrong place at the right time. He certainly was. Well, we have to close now, and I thank you to my guests for giving us an inside look at a very unusual case in criminal investigation. Criminal investigators Barry Simon and David Fetchheimer, who collectively have almost 70 years' experience, both conduct investigations all over the world. David has just returned from an investigation in England a couple of days ago. David has worked on many high-profile cases and has a number of film and movie credits. You might remember one directed by Francis Ford Coppola, The Conversation. Besides Afghanistan, Barry has a reputation for successful inquiries and has worked in Europe, Mexico, Central America, China, and several South Asian countries. Barry and David, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Francie. Thanks. And welcome to our new sponsor, just joining Merlin Information Services for the first time today, IRB Search, formerly International Research Bureau. Welcome to IRB Search. Both are data providers to private investigators and related professions. Next week, tune in as we declassify more real stories from real investigators every Thursday morning, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And if you are not available during the live broadcast, The show can be downloaded to MP3 or iTunes the following day. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. 
Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll be right back. 